Welcome to Analyse This, Mental Health in Film and TV. I'm Dr Boo, clinical psychologist, and I'm joined today by another clinical psychologist, Dr Perry. Dr Perry has an interest in the LGBT community and in the military community. He is psychodynamically and systemically trained, and today we discuss, from a psychological perspective, the Netflix series Tiger King. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. We are talking today about Tiger King and I'm here with Dr. Perry and we wanted to start by just exploring the emotional reactions that we had to watching this series. Um, we wanted to also though contextualize where we're standing. We're both clinical psychologists and we wanted to make it clear that we're not going to be locating our position in terms of a diagnosis but we wanted to talk together today about making sense of what we've seen and how it resonates with us. So Dr. Perry, what emotional reactions did you have to watching Tiger King? One of absolute utter shock and fascination. It was um, a mouth agape moment, wondering what the hell is going on. I don't think I'm particularly alone in, alone in that, but it was almost a bit like, a scab that you know you shouldn't quite pick, but that you kind of keep going back to. And you know it's probably going to scar, but it's kind of enjoyable to keep picking at it. So it was kind of a little bit of a sick fascination, I guess, as a, as a viewer. And it's very difficult not to kind of look at it with the psychological lens as well. I guess it's very hard for us to suspend our teachings and our trainings when we see something um, of this nature, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we, we can't, we can't not, I don't think that anybody with an interest in psychology could have watched the series without wondering and analysing and even potentially diagnosing or trying to diagnose. I kind of don't think any human being without an interest in just general humanity couldn't watch the programme and try to make sense of what the bloody hell was going on. <laughs> yes. And it, it really was, it was quite the roller coaster. As you say, you had mm -hmm. those moments of just being shocked and, and amazed that, that, that this could be happening. Um, through to, there were some moments where I just found it genuinely, incredibly upsetting, incredibly mm. sad. And obviously mm. moments when you find yourself but laughing and not necessarily with somebody, which I think is always uncomfortable. Yeah, there, there was a lot of of different emotions I kind of felt when we, I was watching it. I, I think, as you say, it was a bit of a roller coaster, e even though it was a, a, a bit of a, there were peaks and troughs. I think within there, the, there was also moments of, you know, real sadness for some of the individuals within there and the contexts in which they'd either originated from or maybe where you started to think, or that's the genesis of maybe their difficulties or the genesis of, of how they've come to be. There were also re real moments of, of um, I'm wanting to not use the word joy because it was a bit too strong, but there was, there was quite compelling moments, I think, where you'd seen people who are vulnerable had all come together and made some sense of a family for themselves. And so I think it's very easy to look at this program as it's all pathology or it's all narcissism. And, but actually, if you take away some of those layers, actually, there is the fundamental humanity of people coming together and finding solace 
with their brethren. And however vulnerable people might be, we, we tend to form groups because of that. Um, when you and I spoke about this before, we talked about those forming of groups as in the context of this being almost people forming packs. It's quite an obvious thing, really, that when you are a vulnerable individual, it's safer to be in a pack, especially mm -hmm. if you can lead that pack. Mm. And I think that that's what we saw from the two. I guess that I'd consider almost the two main characters as, as, as Carol and Joe. Although I think that there's definitely a lot to be said about many of the other characters as well. I'm sure we will we'll get to them. But I felt but with both of those people, there was a definite feeling, especially with Joe, that he felt safer, I think, having not only his mm. pack of animals, but his pack of humans that he was. Mm -hmm. I think I think he had a sense that he was looking after them. It, I got that feeling yeah. that he felt that that he was looking after people who weren't well looked after by themselves by mm -hmm. potentially their families potentially the mm -hmm. state and i think there's you know it's very easy to just focus on as you said before the potential narcissism or the the, the strangeness but actually if we bury down a little bit further than that mm -hmm. there was you know an individual who it could be considered was was looking after people where where other people might not have done I think you're bang on. I mean, I, I don't even think it's, it requires that much digging to get to that, to be honest. I think it's this, you know, the superficiality of his sequined outfits. If you take those off, you might be less left with quite a, an interesting naked guy. But I think metaphorically what I mean is this is a chap that probably did collect, you know, people with, you know, drug addiction, without limbs, who didn't have a job, who, you know, they were all the most kind of rejected people within society. And I think if you, you know, I think what's important is locating Tiger King within the context of the US. Um, it's very difficult to ignore the fact that what you got at the helm of the US is, oh God, I can't even believe I'm going to mention him, Donald Trump. But you know, what, what the rhetoric around the Republican um, political landscape you know, is is very difficult to ignore within the context of uh, of Tiger King. You know, it is a very polarized place at the moment, and you know the erosion of rights for the LGBT community in particular. And, and I think people, it's easy to forget that Joe was part of that. You know, and I do think, uh, and I, you know, as a gay man myself, I don't think I represent the entirety of the community, but it, it did resonate with me you know, Joe's potential experiences and maybe what what the driving forces for him, you know, were around collecting, whether it was a collection or, or a drive to bring people together, which I think got distorted along the way. But I think the, the initial impulse around that was to feel safe, to feel part, you know, of a, of a group, of a collective um, and some will argue that, you know, that that was purely for him to be in control. Yeah. And that was purely for him to be at the helm and to feel powerful. And that might be part of the picture, but I don't think it's the entirety of the picture. I think some of this for Joe, you know, what really struck me was feeling safe, you know, and, and I certainly don't mind acknowledging, you know, I grew up in the military until I was 18. And I felt like an anomaly, you know, 
in the context of being gay and negotiating that as a kid, it felt unsafe. It, it was a, it was a kind of don't ask, don't tell. It brought shame onto the family and military career. So it was hidden. So it really resonated with me, you know, Joe's early experiences and the narratives around him being marginalized or treated differently. Uh, and the lengths that people will go to to feel safe. And I think that with that in mind, it was very interesting that he then ended up becoming a cop. And, you know, it, it's, it was almost, I think, trying on another uniform, trying on a different outfit. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I, I often say to people that, you know, you have to try on lots of different, you know, coats and hats until you figure out which one's going to fit for you. And I think that yeah. he very much, you know, chose something very different later when he started opening um, his his collection. But yeah. the idea of being a police officer in in America, in the area of America that he was in, mm. and being gay mm. is is one that I find it I find that really hard to, to sort of square that. And but then there's also the fact that that when you do feel like a, a vulnerable person putting yourself again is into a position of power. He has a gun and he has a uniform. And I think that, you know, it, again, it doesn't take a lot of digging to see that, that that's a very understandable place for him to want to position himself if he was feeling vulnerable. And then he had 50, you know, very aggressive carnivals. Yes. At his disposable, at his disposal. You yeah. know, I think, you know, a lot is said, you know, I, I, I get quite infuriated with the narratives around narcissism because I don't think they actually tell the true picture or how we need to think about narcissism. Let, let's be clear, I think. I mean, my p- position on narcissism is that we, we are all narcissistic. We need narcissism. It's actually self-esteem having faith in oneself, it can become problematic. Of course it can. I suspect for Joe, maybe it did. But I think it's born from shame, marginalization and rejection. So we need to elevate ourselves or feel powerful in order to survive. For me, this is a story of survival uh, in the face of adversity it's not a story it's not a story of craziness it's yeah. a story of survival and that's where it orig- originated for me and that's where I think also there's, there's huge parallels between Joe and Carol because she was a survivor too she was raped she had a very domestically abusive and violent relationship her first marriage I believe all clearly documented on, on the documentary itself and, and she flew into a place of wanting security, wanting position. You know, she married a millionaire. So, you know, there's some very interesting parallels between Carol and Joe and the other characters in, you know, in the story as well. And I think sometimes we are guilty, I think, of looking very pejoratively at narcissism or reducing it to you're narcissistic. And it really invalidates, I think, the voice of the individual but also completely bypasses or dismisses the actual functionality around that narcissism. And I think Joe is a really good example of why he became this very grandiose character and wore many identities and and many masks to make himself feel more powerful, to feel more respected. Um, I think 
all of these identities that he wore, including the glittery suits, which personally I quite liked, I'm not going to lie, I think I was looking about where I could get myself a sequin jacket. There's always room for a sequin jacket in, one, in your life. Um, you know, I think they were armour. They were totally yeah. armour and they were sparkly, so things reflected and bounced off him. You know, to grow up in the deep south, the Bible Belt in America, that must not have been easy. Mm, absolutely, and I think you're right. When you reduce somebody to a diagnosis but particularly for me to a personality disorder diagnosis mm -hmm. you're not coming from a trauma focused perspective no. and certainly as psychologists that's what we are driven to do that's why we formulate that's mm -hmm. you know that's that's what an, another word for a trauma focused approach is you just you're formulating and you are taking the person mm -hmm. with their history rather than just looking at their behavior in and of that moment and Absolutely. i think that there's it's easy for Tiger King for us to to just focus on you know this exotic pacing man with a with a crutch and a big you know cat behind him talking about being broke as shit and the kinky sex and drugs he's had that's mm -hmm. you know he kind of threw it all at the camera at the very beginning mm -hmm. the only thing that struck me was that at the very beginning he actually said you don't want me to take my hat off the audience will say oh my god he has a mullet and I found that really interesting because he still has a mullet he always has had a mullet and he oh we've all had a hat. mullet at one point <laughs> haven't we I remember having a rat's tail in the 80s. God, that was a poor Definitely. choice. But interesting, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think, you know, out of all the things that people could have judged him for, the one thing actually he didn't want to be judged on was his mullet. Exactly. And he threw everything else at the audience. He didn't hold anything back. And I think that... Kind of admirable in a way. Exactly. But I think as well, because he felt, at that point in time, he felt safe. And I think that he felt very much, he felt like the Tiger King. He was, he was the king of, of, of the tigers and of the people. And I don't, I wonder about the position of, of, of Carol in his world from that perspective. And as we watched the documentary going on, the position of um, the other people who came in, whether they be doc documentary makers or people who were there to help him work on his zoo, I think destabilized his position. And I think, may have been part of, um, I don't know, we don't know the whole story, but I think that I felt like I was watching somebody who started to, to, to not feel like he was able to be himself and to put it all out there anymore. Yeah. Something changed. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, Joe, I think, was very congruent in many ways. Um, do I think he was the brightest tool in the box? The smartest tool in the box? No. Do I think that maybe those around him maybe took advantage? Yeah, I do actually. Mm -hmm. um, there was a sadness about, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the main, you know, you, you sat there watching a man, you know, buy offcuts of meat and processed food because he can't afford to feed his animals from, you know, supermarkets. And then you're, and you're kind of looking at it thinking, oh my God, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. This is cruel. Watching tigers pace around, having too many tigers in a pen, you know, it really pulls on your heartstrings. And, you know, the, mm. the, I think our emotions towards animals are much clearer because something, I, 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 without getting too much into it, I think we're quite absolute in, when it comes to animals. It's either good treatment and freedom or it's not. Whereas mm -hmm. with human beings, I think we're, 
you know it's classic attribution theory isn't it really we 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 make sense of you know people in their context whereas animals we don't and but then there was a there was a, there were moments with joe where you would hate him and you would hate what he would represent and then you'd be really moved that this is a guy that was completely decompensating on screen where he was losing all position all control all finance you know all respect from others you know he he'd lost his part one of his partners his relationships were crumbling you know he'd been I, I guess the narrative around it was that he'd been you know frauded out of his company and made a mockery and, and you could see you, you saw him decompensate destructing mm-hmm. you know it yeah. felt like he was destroyed by the end and when he was being sick in front of, in front of the camera through anxiety it would seem and through stress like my heart went out to him and, and you know where he got to and it seemed like people were reveling in his distress and in his demise that was cruel yeah and then i saw the parallel between the cruelty to him and the cruelty to maybe the tigers in captivity yeah. and one of the moments with the with the animals and the bit that i remember taking my heartstrings the most was him removing the kittens when they very very oh gosh yeah. recently been born and mm. that one that that reduced me to tears mm. but there's something there about where he was where he was considering his priorities to be and as you say also how he was being positioned by the documentary makers and then how the documentary did it felt like it turned on him um i i don't think that he was you know I'm not saying that he was entirely innocent in the process at okay. all, but no, I don't think any of them are. No, exactly. And this is the thing is that we end up watching these documentary makers. And in fact, two sets of documentary makers, as you say, reveling in what has happened to him. And then you find yourself watching it as this car crash TV. And it's that awkwardness that we talked about at the beginning, that, that moment of thinking this doesn't feel comfortable. I'm doesn't feel comfortable to watch, but I can't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, I, I must admit, I do quite enjoy car crash TV. Uh, I don't think that necessarily makes me unethical, <laughs> but I do quite like a bit of trash on TV. Um, this, was, this was different. Yeah. This, this wasn't the same as the high gloss veneer of Love Island or Big Brother or or those kind of almost saccharine, you know, UK TV programs. This was something very different um, that really read like a novel that it was very hard to pull up, to make sense of. There were so many competing narratives. I think that's why it was so popular as a TV show. Mm. And also because it, it came at the beginning of lockdown when people were desperate for something to escape with. Um, but well, I, it felt crazy for us. This felt truly on a whole different level. I think this was a way of just completely denying the reality of what was going on around us at the time. Yeah, yeah we have absolutely. to locate it in the fact that we were in a we are in a global pandemic right now, and actually watching Tiger King is is perhaps escapism from yeah. our own, yeah. uh, I guess, psychosis really, because it does feel quite psychotic at the moment. I think it's interesting to see how people reacted to Tiger King as well, in mm. that that you have the people who, I know a lot of people who just will not watch it. 
and who mm. you know, place themselves automatically. This just is not going to be for me. And then people who want to talk about it and, and you know there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet you know there's lots of people's opinions about what they saw and what was going on and then there's a whole different group of people um who were fascinated that you could buy a tiger <laughs> that seemed yeah. to be what at least one person i think in the in the public eye uh, took from it and i think that in itself is interesting though why do people want to own tigers well they are the apex predator on land aren't they yeah. And is there something about conquering power? Conquering, yeah. you know, I guess you could argue that humans are the apex predator, but I guess we're not. We're just more um, organized. Whereas yeah. if you put us in front of a tiger, I know which one's going to lose. Um, yeah. So is there something about demonstrating one's power and one's status by occupying? themselves at the apex it's yeah. it's interesting how people have positioned i find it fascinating that people want to own a a very brutish impulse orientated animal to want to own an animal that is all impulse and all nurture you know all nature i just yeah. find it bizarre why not just own a chihuahua i'm just thinking that's <laughs> Have a chihuahua. That's what that's, well, that's all limbic system right there. That's all that is. It's got no room in its little head for anything else. I'd probably throw a Westie in there as well. My <laughs> Westie has got all impulse. She has a huge prey drive. Just the idea, the potential threat as well. I mean, like there was one moment in that documentary where he was, there was, it was almost set up like he was put in there deliberately and left. And there were tigers starting to actually grab him. I, and I felt really uncomfortable with that because I thought, you've got a camera in there. There's people that have almost deliberately, it, it seemed to set it up that it was deliberate. Yes, Were we potentially we watching, yeah. you know, conscious, deliberate murder? There was something happening there. And I, yeah. and I felt really uncomfortable at that point. I thought, you've left him in there and that's very vulnerable. Because there was no question that these were still incredibly dangerous animals. And in mm. fact, Saf had his arm taken off, mauled by one of the tigers. And then he came back to work five days later, which yeah. amazed me and it made me wonder what was going on there. sense of belonging though. I think that was more yeah. about the sense of belonging that I'll, I'm happy to lose an arm because at least here I belong. Yes. And I you think know. with, yeah, with Saf out, out of everybody, I could understand that that would be his position. And I thought it was really interesting that the documentary makers um, used the wrong pronoun for him throughout the entire documentary and again that made me question the position that the documentary makers were taking with this because they will have known that Saf identifies as male that he's not going to have hidden that and you know I think I think it was quite clear and yet they didn't give him that courtesy and I think that that's interesting because it did yeah. make me question their their motives and what they were and how much they had been trying to set people up, perhaps, mm -hmm. or at the very least position them on our screens in a way that didn't make me feel entirely comfortable. But there were strong themes of betrayal throughout the programme, wasn't there? Oh yes. A lot of betrayal. Societal betrayal, collegial betrayal, spousal betrayal. Yeah you name it, that there were so many themes of betrayal. And I think, you know, 
the wrong use of pronoun was another betrayal. I, I, I guess what we're talking about now is whether the producers um, betrayed those that they were filming. Yes. Opportunistic, really, I guess. Yes, I suppose you probably have to be to be an extent to be a documentary maker in the first place. You must have to be relatively opportunistic. Of course and, you do. It's about you've got to have an alliance to the you know TV company. This is about ratings, pushing people yeah. to their limit without potentially compromising their mental health, but taking them to the brink. One of the characters we've not spoken about was Doc Antle. Oh, is it Antle? I had my body tensed up whenever I heard saw him I had a very visceral reaction whenever he came on he was very guarded you know you, you Carol was well I, I guess she presented herself as very open Joe was too open in many ways um and Doc was this kind of shadowy figure that um again took a very powerful position even called himself a doctor I know that me and you do but this seemed to be something um, it didn't feel nice. It didn't feel comfortable. And there was a harem of women and a harem of animals and a harem of elephants. You know, there was just harems everywhere. And I thought, yeah. what, what are all these harems about? That, that, yes. that I got a very strong, I got a much stronger reaction to Doc than I did to, to Carol or Joe. I did as well. And I think that there's something there about the way that he was described by his former, and I hasten to use the word employees because I don't feel that they were. It felt much more like a cult that he was bringing them into than an employee-employer relationship mm. um, in a very different way to the way that I think Joe had his, his group of people and mm. Carol had her volunteers. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think mm. anybody was necessarily looking after the people that were working with or for them very well, but there was, uh, Doc, I think, took that to a different level, it would appear from what, what we were well, showing. Well, I think it's because there was something very hidden about Doc, um, because you weren't allowed to go into his property. You know, everything else was mm -hmm. very open. I think there was such a stark contrast between Joe, the poverty so that surrounded Joe, yeah. and then almost the grandiosity around Doc. And it, it seemed much more wealthy around Doc, but you weren't allowed to see what was behind that veneer. Um, and I think it made me very, it, it made me take a very doubting or skeptical position around him, much more than I did about Joe. Yes, but then as you said, Joe was, he, he didn't appear to be hiding anything from the beginning, as you say, completely different. Mm. The, to the vibe we were getting potentially from from Doc and, and from Carol to an mm. extent as well. I felt that, that we weren't necessarily getting a full picture of what was going on there or what her history had been, just in terms of you know, where her animals had come from and, you know, and for how long she had taken a position that you shouldn't be buying and selling big cats. And yeah, that, Yes, that wasn't that wasn't always her position, though, was it? Yeah, it wasn't Ex exactly. Mm. And and I I get this feeling that that she was owning up to a very short period of time where she didn't have that position, but was making mm. it appear that she had held her her current belief system for a relatively long period of time. Mm. And I'm not sure how much I believed that. No, 
But no, I didn't I, disagree I with, with didn't disagree with her wanting to stop, you know, little kittens being petted at supermarkets and no, but I wanted lots. her. I wanted her to own it more. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's what I was waiting for. I think I wanted more from her. Um, yeah. And I didn't feel like I got it. And I, I felt like I got more from Joe when he was vomiting and talking about what he'd done. You know, I felt like there was remorse and regret from Joe towards the end. Um, yes. And there'll be some that don't agree with that because, you know, he was arrested and he's in prison now. Um, and whether that was just for show, there'll always be the doubt around that, I guess. But I kind of felt it. I did feel his regret and his remorse. And to me, that felt healthy. I didn't get that from other the other protagonists. I didn't get yeah. that from Carol. Um, and, and I didn't get, certainly didn't get that from Doc. Yes, I agree that I don't think that... that there was much show of remorse for, for Carol's previously held belief systems or, or, or even her role in the position that she was, to be honest, I think almost baiting Joe to an extent, although vice versa as well. Because oh, um, <laughs> I think that there's something there about people sort of using each other and, and positioning themselves as being the complete opposite of each other. And actually, I don't think that they were quite as, as opposite as they both would like to have thought they were. I'm not entirely sure that Joe was remorseful. I kind of got a much more anxious, confused vibe from him than necessarily feeling, you know, I wish I had never threatened to kill somebody. I'm not entirely mm. sure he ever owned that. But I also don't know if that's because he never really felt that he owned it in the first place as a, as a real position that he was taking. I still don't know. No, I don't, th I don't think I got remorse around his threats to kill. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I got more remorse around the fact that he ended up in a situation where he was, he couldn't afford to look after animals. I, I think there was a deeper resource that we'll probably never know about. I think he probably had to do some things that he feels very, very guilty about, I suspect. Um, mm. You know, I think there were, there were emerging stories around him burying animal, killing animals because he couldn't feed them and with euthanize um, animals, you know, rather than see them starve. Um, so I think there were, there were things that were playing very heavy on him, but I'm not so sure, however, how much, you know, his behavior towards Carol played. Mm. I think he was too much in his anger, too much in his, there, there was too much in the dynamic between them for him to be able to, to, to kind of see what was going on. He had said in a documentary that I'd watched before, Louis Theroux went and saw him. Mm. And this is quite a long time ago. And frankly, he and his staff team looked a lot healthier back then. Um, but there was something that he was saying there about that he that he if he couldn't look after his animals, he would kill them. And he made it really clear that he was saying that back mm. way before this documentary was made. I wonder about his position with Carol, whether she was something that he could focus on you're talking about her, her him focusing on obsessed the, this with hatred her. and I, but I'm i wonder obsessed. whether i wonder whether there's something about his ability then personify all the things that that that, that rejected him and whether he could have positioned her in in this place because it, it gave him a thing to focus on mm. 
Mm. I may be overanalyzing him there. It's a good point. Let's get let's get all analytical. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's. I think you're right. I do think she represented. I think he probably thinking about all the rejection and where he kind of where he was positioned and where society positioned him, where his you know the the landscape in which he he, he lived in southern america you know i can see how maybe carol represented all of those things for him mm. and he could quite happily project all of his anger and frustration and murderous rage onto carol in fact he did yeah exactly um, so I, I can see how she became the focus for a lot of the feelings that perhaps he hadn't resolved mm. um and that had been maybe satisfied by having a park full of tigers for a very long time. And then when that started to fall away and was threatened, all of that anger, that unresolved anger started to emerge again. Yeah. Uh, I'm not condoning his behavior yeah. in the slightest, but I, I guess it's just trying to make sense of where it all comes from, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's what we do. Um, as psychologists when we sit and talk to each other about these things oh, um, God, also, annoying. we really are and that's what this whole podcast is about let's all just watch films and then be irritating about them afterwards what i liked about in some respects with tiger king i sat there and there was moments where i thought this would never happen in england this would never happen in, in britain we don't do this kind of thing and you know what it was and i thought oh gosh how how xenophobic to the US, you know, it's very othering. It's very easy to other the US yeah. at the moment. I think with Donald Trump in position as well, it's very easy to other, this is America, this is Americans. It's not, it's humanity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all have the potential to be wounded to such a deep extent that we find the most prolific ways to feel safe and powerful. So this is not just America. This is we all have the potential to do this kind yes. of stuff, yeah. um, and it, it's very easy. I think to, you know, what it really what really struck with me is that we watch a lot of this car crash TV and we other. Oh, I would never do that. I could never be like that, which is it, which is a complete fantasy and a complete denial of our own potential to to go there. And I think we all have that. Do we think that we forgive Joe a lot because we don't think of him as being particularly clever? I, I think I noticed my tendency to make excuses for him. I certainly felt that impulse. There's, I think because there's moments where you think, oh my God, do you really think anybody's buying this? You know, the whole political agenda that he had, the whole sparkly sequin jacket, not that I'm averse to, I would wear one of those too. Um, the whole singing over, you know, which is clearly not his voice, and the leather jackets looking uber masculine, but still coming off as quite camp. Not there's anything wrong with camp. I embrace mine completely. But this whole, you know, this whole kind of caricature of himself, you know, I, I kind of do forgive him because it just makes a little bit of a mockery. Yeah. But then, then I suddenly connect to the fact that this is a guy that started you know, threatening to kill people, threatening to put snakes in Carol Baskin's letterbox. I think he did. Written. He did put oh, snakes in Oh, he did do that, didn't he? Yeah, on her but, birthday. You know, it, it's interesting how we are pulled, I guess, as humans to make allowances for people that we empathise with. Yeah. It's classic attribution, isn't it? 
it goes back to this idea that we don't believe that he is taking himself seriously and therefore we don't take himself seriously but actually i I think he does take himself well, it's quite dangerous isn't it really because look at whole, the whole donald trump thing yes but also with with that idea in mind of perhaps setting yourself up for something that you didn't really want to happen in the first place yeah i mean it's interesting you know he's compelled and thinks you know it, i guess we can speculate and it is all speculation but we are speculating that his drive to nourish himself through power is the thing that he's wanted but I guess as psychologists we would argue that that's not really what one should really nourish themselves with. No especially not when it comes at the detriment of other people and mm. we've talked about him rescuing all these people um, and having you know potentially given people a second chance but the other way of looking at it and mm. some of the other things that we saw in the program is a group of people who are actually quite badly treated by him, you know, mm. with this ruling with um, fear and shouting at people. And mm. I think I have read in articles where people who've worked there have purported that if they did something wrong, he may fire them and they'd be out on the streets with nothing, or he mm. may, you know, restrict the food that they're getting. You know, that power that he has is something which I think needs to be taken into consideration when, when we look at the idea that he actually... Well, there's a parallel there between how he tra treated, you know, his the animals in his care, and, and you know, yeah, did you know? Does he see the the world as full of animals? Yes. We can't get away from the idea that do we make the assumption that the relationships that he's developed he developed with his partners were they coercive in nature? Were they did they start off like that? Did they become like that? Um, we, we don't know the trajectory of those relationships, but they certainly towards the latter ends felt uncomfortable to see. I mean, mm. you know, I said before, I, I like voyeuristic TV. I think there's something, I think there's something, you know, innately quite masochistic about us all. We, we, we don't want to look, we don't want to lance the spot, but we do. We don't want to pick the scab, but we end up doing. We don't want to look, we look at things we're uncomfortable at. We look at things that we don't, we have a conflict about. Um, and I think that's the same with, with Joe, you know, watching Joe and his life unfold. And the whole context of kind of reality TV is we disconnect from our own reality and, and we can be voyeuristic about others. But this was on a real magnitude, wasn't it? We actually watched somebody else witnessing somebody blow their brains out on tv where does it end exactly so i think that any of these kind of reality tv shows thrive on any of those subjects of power and sex and drugs and politics and death and right. i think that's what made this series so compelling was that it had all, all of, them. of those things all of mm. those things and that moment where travis shoots himself in front of joshua is the kind of the culmination he's we've watched we watched Travis becoming more and more erratic as the series mm. progresses and it seems to culminate in that moment where Joshua having to witness something like that and the scarring of of witnessing that must have been phenomenal mm. that seems to as you say that's part of that kind of voyeuristic side of things so in the fifth episode of Tiger King there's discussion about whether Joe's husbands are actually gay 
Mm. And we know that John Finley um, gets another of the people in the zoo pregnant. And we know that Rick Kirkham talks about Travis having numerous affairs with people in the park and actually telling Joe Exotic that he was straight. And I think Joe Exotic actually says at one point, I, I fell in love with straight guys. And I think that that's a really interesting power potential imbalance going on there in the sense that wow. he's having these relationships. Mm. I've been there. I've fallen in love with a straight guy. <laughs> but you didn't marry the person. No, no. I, yeah, would, would have been all right. <laughs> Probably would have ended in disaster. Um, I think it, we, we can make such assumptions quite quickly that just because somebody doesn't occupy one sexuality that they instantly occupy another area of sexuality. Absolutely. And I, I think, think it's really important that we don't subscribe to a binary view of sexuality. Yeah. I mean, it's up to people how they identify, of course. Um, you know, the way I looked at Joe, uh, there, was a there was a desperation from him. Mm. That felt like a desperation. And then there was a part of me that thought, oh, he, he's now in a, in, a, in a poly relationship as well. And then I just thought, is one not enough? Not that I'm disparaging polyamorous relationships, but there was something about you, you really need more. You always need more all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wondered, is that because you lost somebody so significant to you? And, you know, we've had the conversation around safety in numbers before. But but I think you're right. It's, I think that it's very easy to then, because this person had affairs uh, and I, then, you know, was t telling people that he was straight, that we can easily make the assumption that this chap was straight. Therefore, Joe was coercive uh, and was doing something really abusive. We don't know that. And I think we need to be careful that we don't jump to those conclusions. Um, yeah, I totally it's a, agree. It's a really I tricky one. I think for me, it's not necessarily even about whether they identified as a binary subsexuality or on the continuum, which I think most people are. I think for me, it's about the power dynamics there where they both are very reliant on Joe financially. I'm sure mm. they talk about it in the show as well, that if mm. they weren't with Joe, they would have no home, they would have no job, they would mm. have no money. And that level of power imbalance mm. in a relationship, I think, can be very, very dangerous. Well, power, power is seductive, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. But then it also, if you, if all of your needs are based on um, entering into a relationship, then you're going to try and maintain that relationship to the best of your ability. Mm. Um, you know, and, and is your sexual identity worth compromising for food, shelter, warmth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I agree with you. All we can really do is think, gosh, somebody's com potentially has compromised themselves in order to have, to have their basic needs met and also to fuel their addiction. Yeah. You know, however they identify now, we don't know how they identified earlier on in their relationship, but certainly things seem to take a turn for the worst as the series progressed and we saw people decompensate through drug use and or, or was it more the trauma of being around Joe? Was it more the trauma of being in that quite depriving, chaotic context? Mm -hmm. Was that the reason for their decompensation? We, we don't know. We don't know. But there was a lot of decompensating going on. There was. And yeah, and as you say, not just, not just Joe decompensating. Although I think it's worth observing that his husband at the end, you know, very much married to him and supportive of him. And I think that that's 
a real positive to have seen at the end, although, you know, he leaves the zoo with his husband and, and this is shortly before he then gets arrested. Mm. But there seems to be something um, about that relationship that had a very different quality to it. And I think perhaps it was because Joe wasn't coming at that from a position of power anymore. He hadn't got the power at that point. No, he's in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't have any power, didn't he? No power, no sense of liberty at all. Yeah. Um, so actually, he probably was the more powerless one. I, but I, I guess it's easy to say he didn't have any power, but he did have, he did have some influence, didn't he? He was very much the talk of the moment. Is there power in that? I guess one could say that there is. And that in itself is, is seductive. Vanity is seductive, isn't it? There was so much peacocking from every single character. I don't think I've ever seen so much peacocking in one context in my life. Yes, that's very true. And actually, it definitely goes for all of them. I think it really mm. does, because it's very obvious to talk about Joe as a peacock um, with his sequin jackets and... and. But Carol, similarly, she uh, and the amount of tiger print that she had either in her mm. home, and I hate tiger print, oh, I don't get it, no, never... No, I, it wouldn't go with my skin tone, I don't think. But, but she was, you know, she was very peacocky with the whole, like almost embodying a female, a feline presence. But then Doc the was, yeah, always yeah. with the crown. She had always had this thing around her head, and and yes. it was a very hippie crown. But it was still a crown. Still a crown. And then Doc, obviously, with his mansions and coming in on an elephant, and you know. Yes, there was lots of peacocking, but then, you know, there's something very peacocky, I think, about the US as a political system, as a country in itself, that it, you know, that I think that the country really has such faith in its being the land of freedom and the, the leaders of the free world. And yet I don't see much liberty. Uh, I don't see much substance to those narratives. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I see more peacocking and corruption and inequality. And so so is, there something, is there a parallel between the chaos of um, Tiger King and the thirst for power and position uh, or coercion or threat and fear and shame um, and peacocking more generally? Does, is that paralleling? you know, the kind of political landscape that we see in the US now. It's kind of hard not to draw some parallels to the incumbent president, really, uh, and how much peacocking is going on there and, and how shallow and, and vapid it actually, it actually is. Not only did it parallel America in many ways, although, you know, not all of America, some places seem relatively sensible, but... Um, it did remind me a lot of Jerry Springer. That was really voyeuristic, where you saw violence and peacocking and wigs flying when, you know, the, the glitter all came off and the reality was exposed. In many ways, it was like a kind of docu-soap of Jerry Springer. Um, I wonder, you know, as Jerry says on the end of what he used to say on the end of Jerry Springer was his final thought was, you know, power does corrupt. Um, and understanding people's drive to be 
you know, in positions of power because they think what will come from power is a sense of safety and a sense of self. But actually, that's not the case. Actually, when people have nothing and have no power and they stop their thirst for it, that's when they come into contact with who they really are and what they really want. Yeah. We're going to finish there. Thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Perry. I hope we can have you on another podcast in the future. My absolute pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. There'll, there'll always be other narratives, I guess, we could have explored and people will have, I guess, loads of different thoughts or, you know, reactions to this. And it's just food for thought, isn't it? But I'd love to come back and do something, do something else. Just this minute started watching something else that's less voyeuristic, but more emotionally arousing so maybe we could talk about that uh, another time excellent i look forward to that this has been analyze this mental health and film and tv i'm dr boo thanks to my guest dr perry if you have any feedback on today's episode or suggestions for future episodes please visit our facebook page analyze this or tweet us at the dr boo i'd love to hear from you don't miss another episode by subscribing to us on social media and via your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.